In case you haven't heard, I'm excited to announce that I'm going to be in Kansas City on July 11th through the 12th, 2020, attending the True Crime Podcast Festival. As you may recall, I attended this last year in Chicago, and I'm so excited to be back for a second year. The festival is specially designed around your desire to mingle, interact, and have casual conversation with the podcasters you listen to regularly. There are also going to be panel discussions and live episode recordings, which is personally my favorite. Some of the shows registered are The Fall Line, Court Junkie, Pretend Radio, Canadian True Crime, Crime Lines, Invisible Choir, and the Generation Y podcast. You seriously don't want to miss this. Just go to the website, truecrimepodcastfestival.com. I'll also include a link in the show notes to find information on tickets and the hotel. Prices do go up the closer we get to the event, so you don't want to wait. When you buy your ticket, make sure you mention True Crime Fan Club on your ticket registration survey. And I'll see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. On the evening of July 24th, 1984, Brenda Lafferty and her daughter, Erica, were brutally murdered in their little apartment in a small suburb of Salt Lake City called American Fork, Utah. The men that attacked Brenda and her child were on a mission. One of the attackers, Ron Lafferty, claimed God sent him on this mission to remove Brenda and several others to right the wrongs he felt were committed against him. Ron believed that Brenda and others caused his wife to divorce him and take his children, fleeing halfway across the country. On that one fateful day, Ron Lafferty, with the help of his brother, Dan Lafferty, committed two atrocious murders and attempted to commit two more before the day and their religious killings came to an end. Okay, on to the show. The Lafferty brothers include Ron, Dan, Alan, Tim, Mark, and Watson. They were raised in Orem, Utah, and grew up in the Church of Latter-day Saints, or LDS Church. There were a total of eight children in the Lafferty home. The family was very strict and religious. Ron was the oldest, and he served as a voluntary missionary for his LDS church in Florida when he was 19. He married his wife, Diane, about six months later, and they had six kids together. Ron was a very religious man who was very involved in his community and served on city council. Brenda was Alan Lafferty's wife, and they had a daughter named Erica, who was 18 months old when she was murdered. During the years of 1982 and 1983, Ron started changing. He started spending more time with his brother Dan. Dan was a troublemaker and frequently found himself at odds with the law for not paying taxes and license issues with his business. In 1982, Dan and his brother Mark were both chiropractors and practiced out of the basement in a family home. Dan was always behind on taxes and eventually a lien was placed on his house. The family wanted Ron to speak to Dan about getting the taxes paid so they didn't lose it. Ron was always the more responsible of the brothers. However, the two started spending a lot more time together at this point, and Ron found himself agreeing with Dan's ideas about the government. 
He became more radical and even his appearance began to reflect this as he grew his hair and beard out and dressed sloppy. Brothers Dan, Ron, Mark, Tim, and Watson started to meet regularly to talk about religion and politics. Their ideas were on the more radical side. Ron started to disagree with the LDS church ideas and spoke out against those principles and ideas more frequently. In 1983, Ron was excommunicated from the LDS church. There were several reasons for his excommunication, including refusing to support his kids, not sustaining the leaders of the church, violating the law of the land, and advocating doctrine contrary to that of the church. Diana divorced Ron in 1984 and took their six children and fled to Florida. Ron was very upset that she left him and felt that her leaving him plus his excommunication wasn't fair. The brothers met a man named Robert Crossfield, who said he was a prophet from Canada. He started teaching the brothers and they formed a group called the School of Prophets. In the spring of 1984, Ron claimed he received a revelation from God that he needed to remove four people. There were four people that he specifically had in mind. Ron and Dan were zealous in the idea that they were prophets, and they recruited other men that were likely as religiously disenfranchised as Ron was. Before long, the brothers settled on their method to remove the people that Ron decided needed to go. Most sadly, he set his sights on four complete innocents, whose only crime was who they were related to by marriage and church. The brutal violence that these brothers inflicted on their very own sister-in-law and baby niece was so disturbing that it would stay in the minds of law enforcement for years to come. The removal was obviously meant to include Brenda and Erica. Brenda was believed to be evil because Ron thought she convinced his wife Diana to divorce him. Erica was ordered to be removed because she would, quote, grow up to be an evil bitch like her mother. Ron believed that two others were to be removed as well, Richard Stowe and Chloe Lowe. Richard Stowe was the ecclesiastical leader of the Church of Latter-day Saints that Ron, his wife, and children attended before Ron started to change. Chloe Lowe was Diana's friend that encouraged her to leave Ron. Richard, through the church, helped Diana get financial assistance, and that angered Ron even further. On March 13, 1984, Ron had another revelation that he was to consecrate an instrument to carry out the removal of the four people. The others in the School of Prophets didn't agree with this except Dan and Watson. The group broke up, but Dan and Ron decided they should continue with the removal, so they continued making plans. The brothers actually told their brother Alan about their removal plan, which was surprising because he wasn't part of the School of Prophets. Alan told his brothers that he would do anything possible to protect his wife and daughter, but he had no idea they would actually carry out the plan, let alone when. On July 24, 1984, Dan and Ron, along with their friends Charles Carnes, who went by Chip, and Ricky Knapp, were going to Salt Lake City, Utah. As they were leaving, Ron said he felt called to go to his brother Mark's house for a gun. Mark was suspicious about the request because Ron didn't hunt anymore, but Ron told him that he would hunt, quote, any fucking thing that gets in my way. After they left Mark's house, they decided to go to Alan's apartment to get another gun and pondered whether this would be the day of the removal. 
They went to Allen's, but since he wasn't home, they left and headed toward Salt Lake City. Suddenly, Dan said he felt compelled to return to Allen's. When he went back, Dan went into the apartment, and Brenda was home with Erica. Dan started fighting and yelling at Brenda. Ron got out of the car and went inside with his brother. The friends waited outside in the car. While out in the car, they could hear the brothers physically beating Brenda and heard her screaming for them not to hurt her baby. They could also hear the little girl crying for her mommy. After a time, it became quiet and the brothers came back out to the car, covered in blood. When Alan returned home and found Brenda lying in a pool of blood in the kitchen, he could immediately see that she received a brutal beating with contusions and bruisings on her face, head, arms, knees, and back. She was strangled with a vacuum cleaner cord that was wrapped around her neck several times. Her throat had been slashed with a massive cut clear across her neck, slicing through her trachea, jugular, and carotid arteries. The cut was so deep that it cut into her spinal cord. The injuries to baby Erica were even worse. And a listener note, we are going to describe the state of Erica's body. If you feel that this is going to be triggering for you in some way, please skip forward about 30 seconds. Erica was found in her crib, propped up against the side with her neck slashed. It was slashed so severely that her esophagus, carotid arteries, and jugular veins were completely cut through. Her cut was also so deep that it cut into her cervical spinal column. Only some tissue and bone held her head to her tiny body. So I just wrapped up my listening binge on Detective Trap. Detective Trap basically takes you into the life of a cop who conducts herself relentlessly. And it's hosted by award-winning journalist Chris Gofford. Detective Trap is a story of a detective who fights her way through her own personal struggles and society's indifference to bring a serial killer to justice. Since I finished with the episode, I'm telling you that right now, there's so much to binge and so much to catch up on. You seriously will like it a lot. And Chris Gofford and Jalissa Trap do not disappoint in this series. So while you're listening... Make sure to subscribe to Detective Trap on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. You can also find the link in the episode notes. The brothers decided that they would remove Chloe Lowe next, so they drove to her house. They thought she would be an easy target because she was tiny and probably couldn't put up much of a fight. Thankfully for Chloe, she wasn't home, so they broke into her house and stole some stuff, and then left to go looking for Robert Stowe. While they were driving to Robert's, they missed the exit for his place, so they just kept on going and decided not to remove Chloe and Robert after all. They started to head towards Windover and had to stop along the way. Both Ron and Dan talked about the murder of Brenda and Erica. They pulled out the knife that was used to stab and cut both of their throats. Ron talked about slashing Brenda's throat and told Dan that he was thankful that Dan was there and able to kill the baby because he didn't think he would be able to do it himself. The group made it to Windover and rented a room. The next day, Chip and Ricky started freaking out about what the brothers had done, so they left that night. They disposed of the knife that was used to kill Brenda and Erica, 
as well as the bloody clothes the brothers were wearing. The friends went and tried hiding out at Chip's brother's house in Cheyenne, Wyoming, but were eventually located and arrested by the FBI. Ron and Dan were found and arrested in Reno, Nevada on August 17, 1984, while in line at the buffet at the Circus Circus Casino. Both Chip and Ricky would go on to testify against Dan and Ron at their respective murder trials. Both brothers were charged with aggravated burglary of both Brenda's home and Chloe Lowe's home, and two counts of conspiracy to commit murder of Chloe Lowe and Robert Stowe, as well as capital felonies involving death. They were arraigned together and were going to be tried together. They each indicated that they wanted to represent themselves, but the court still appointed standby counsel. The court appointed Michael Esplin and Gary Waite, who represented Ron and Dan through most of all of their future proceedings, even after they were fired by Ron at one point. They each had a competency evaluation before the trial began. On September 28, 1984, both brothers were determined to be competent to stand trial. A second hearing was held on November 1, 1984, and again, both brothers were found competent. At this time, Ron and Dan were both sitting in jail awaiting their trial when Ron attempted suicide in his jail cell. After the suicide attempt, his attorney requested another competency evaluation. At this point, Dan's case was split away from Ron's and Dan proceeded to trial where he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Ron was found incompetent to stand trial after his suicide attempt. He was sent to a state hospital to be treated and would continue to be evaluated until he was found to be competent. After Ron's fourth competency hearing, he was deemed to be able to stand trial, which commenced on April 25, 1985, and concluded May 7, 1985. The jury found Ron guilty on all counts and recommended he be sentenced to death for two capital murders. Ron appealed his sentence, and the state appeals court denied his appeal. He filed another appeal to the Federal Appeals Court, which was granted on the basis that the wrong legal standard was applied to the competency issue, so his conviction and sentence were overturned and sent back to the state trial court to be retried. Naturally, the state was going to try the case again, so Ron once again was charged with first-degree felony homicide, first-degree aggravated burglary, and second-degree conspiracy to commit criminal homicide. There were two counts on each charge. Ron had a competency hearing in November of 1992 and was deemed incompetent to stand trial, so once again, he was sent to a state hospital for treatment for mental illness. Almost a year and a half later, in February of 1994, the court held another hearing on Ron's competency, but this time, after much testimony from different doctors that were not treating Ron, the court found Ron to be competent. The defense team filed numerous motions with the court, which placed even further delay on the proceedings. In February 1996, the second trial for Ron Lafferty began. Ron had numerous outbursts during this trial. He would act out and yell things in the courtroom, and it was so disruptive that the judge had him taken out several times. In fact, Ron was removed from the courtroom so many times that his attorney, filed a motion for yet another competency hearing before the trial went any further. There were eight doctors that were there to give expert testimony regarding the state of Ron's mental health and whether his mental illness would prevent him from participating in his own defense. 
four experts would testify for the prosecution and the defense. After hearing from each of the experts and weighing their testimony, the judge again ruled Ron was able to continue to stand trial. On March 25, 1996, the trial reconvened, and on April 10, 1996, Ron was found guilty by a second jury of his peers, and after the penalty phase concluded, the jury unanimously voted for the death penalty. An order for a stay of execution was immediately filed on the basis that the trial court erred in finding Ron competent for trial. Aside from the competency claim, Ron raised several issues in his appeal. He claimed that the experts used should not be someone already familiar with the case. He challenged the contents of the reports they filed, the timetables in getting the experts, and he claimed that it was inadequate for the experts to render an opinion on his competency based on an interview alone. The court responded by saying that both sides had agreed on an expert to render an opinion and that the experts used were not directly treating Ron, which is what is required according to Section 77-15-52B of the Utah Penal Code. Furthermore, that section does not require those experts to be completely independent of the proceedings. They just cannot be directly involved with the defendant's treatment. The court did rule that the trial court made an error when they allowed the competency hearing to be held the day after several of the experts' reports were filed with the court. The rules state that the hearing should be heard not less than five days or more than 15 days after the expert reports are filed with the court. On the other hand, the court permitted two experts to testify before the hearing date due to their unavailability and to avoid locating even more experts to stand in. The court ultimately ruled that despite the technical error, it was not enough to render the error reversible. Another issue raised on the appeal was that the expert reports did not address each of the items required by statute. Section 77-15-54 states in part, quote, The expert shall in the conduct of the examination and then their report to the court consider and address the defendant's present capacity to comprehend and appreciate the charges or allegations against him, disclose to counsel pertinent facts, events, and states of mind, and comprehend and appreciate the range and nature of possible penalties. If applicable, that may be imposed in the proceedings against him. The court held that because the doctors all testified in person to anything they didn't actually write in their report, the claim was meritless. It was also concluded that because Ron didn't even testify, part of the statute didn't even apply, and Ron wasn't on psychoactive drugs at the time, so the experts needn't address that. The court also ruled that reports from the experts based on interviews with Ron alone were sufficient and the burden of having at least two examinations by experts was met. Ron claimed that the court made an error in finding him competent. The appeals court can't overturn the lower court decision unless it's clearly erroneous. Despite Ron having outbursts in court and being removed several times, at least a few of the experts that the court deemed highly credible testified that they believe that Ron made these outbursts on purpose to divert attention or even because it was his way of disagreeing with or being insulted by what was happening during the hearings. They gave specific examples in their testimony about Ron and his religious beliefs, and some of the times Ron acted out in court. The court even commented on Ron's demeanor by saying he was warm with a lively sense of humor. While Ron's behavior was strange, 
it didn't rise to the level of incompetent. Next, Ron's lawyers claim that the trial court made a mistake in denying their motion for a new trial. About two weeks after the trial started, the defense submitted several signed affidavits about Ron's weird behavior. However, they chose not to pursue court intervention, so Ron wasn't unfairly prejudiced by the jury. Despite the documented odd behaviors that was described in the many affidavits, the court ruled that this was not new evidence and had already been ruled on as not rendering him incompetent. Ron also attempted to claim that the jurors were unfairly stricken, but again, the court ruled against him when they noted that the prosecution was permitted to strike someone that says they absolutely cannot set aside their personal feelings about the death penalty in order to weigh the mitigating factors against the aggravating factors. This claim arose because a juror was struck as she did not feel she could make an exception to her belief against the death penalty. This was considered permissible by the court. Yet another issue Ron raised was what he claimed was victim impact evidence. The claim was that the court erred by admitting a black and white videotape that showed the victims and the crime scene. Also, he alleged that the prosecution made improper comments in closing statements by reminding the jury how young Erica was when she was murdered and that she would be about 13 years old around the time of the trial. Because the videotape didn't speak in any way to the victim's character, it was permitted. And furthermore, the videotape didn't get too up close to the victims, but really was intended to show the crime scene. Since Erica's age was admitted into the trial record, it wasn't improper to include how old she would have been at the time since any reasonable person could probably figure out the math. Nothing the prosecutor said addressed the victim's character or how the deaths have affected living family members. Since the information that was said in closing statements didn't prejudice the defendant, it was not a reversible error. In addition, the media interviews Ron gave were played at the penalty phase because such video is allowed. Ron also claimed that the court made an error when they admitted his statements to the media because the jury could find them unfairly prejudicial. Ron and his brother Dan were doing an interview where they didn't show any remorse and they were wearing orange jail jumpsuits. Statements made during media interviews could be interpreted as Ron and Dan lacking remorse. However, the lawn Ron cited in his appellate brief was based on a California case and in the state of Utah, lack of remorse evidence is permitted. One of Ron's most atrocious claims, yes, it does get worse, was that the trial court made an irreversible error when they didn't allow a jury instruction that the jury can consider sympathy, pity, and mercy when considering the mitigating factors for recommending the death penalty. There is no statute in Utah law that says a defendant is allowed to make a general appeal to a jury sympathy. He also tried to challenge the constitutionality of the death penalty, but because it is enforced in Utah, the sentence was upheld. In another effort to refuse responsibility, Ron claimed that his sentence was disproportionate to his brother Dan's, particularly since Dan testified at his trial that he committed both murders but was not sentenced to death. But remember, there were witnesses, Chip and Ricky, and they both heard Ron say in the car that he murdered Brenda, and they both testified to such, so this claim was also without merit. In the most laughable claim of all, Ron tried to claim that the court made an irreversible error by allowing the second trial because it violated the double jeopardy clause. 
The court didn't likely have to explain very much about why this claim had zero merit. But for anyone that doesn't know, the double jeopardy clause means a person cannot be charged for a crime twice if the first trial results in acquittal. Double jeopardy doesn't apply in an instance where a conviction is overturned on appeal. In conclusion, none of the claims raised by Ron during his appeal of his second trial was a reversible error and the conviction and sentencing were upheld. Ron Lafferty chose to be executed by firing squad. The last time anyone was executed by firing squad in Utah was Ronnie Lee Gardner in 2010, who murdered an attorney when he was trying to escape a courthouse. Utah has since changed its laws regarding death penalty executions, and now the firing squad is only used as a last resort if, for some reason, the lethal injection drugs were unavailable. Ronald Lafferty was a mere months away from his execution date, but in a twist of fate, he passed away of natural causes at a Utah State prison on November 11, 2019. He was 78 years old. His death has hopefully brought some peace for the family and friends of the dear victims, Brenda and Erica Lafferty. As former American Fork Police Department Chief Terry Fox was quoted as saying, I'll never forget this. I've seen a lot of death in my career. This one was different in the case that it was religiously motivated. You can use the word brutal, horrific, and I just don't throw those out lightly because this was a really, really brutal murder. It was different from a lot of crime scenes in a lot of ways. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written by Mary Cole, researched by Brittany Martinez, edited and proved by Brittany Martinez. This episode was produced by Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. I'm your host, Lainey. <laughs>